Man, I love coming to the house of the Lord. I think it was the psalmist who said, I was glad when they said to me, let's go to the house of the Lord. My dad used to actually say that when we're on the way to church and we did not feel glad. <laughs> He'd also come into our room when we didn't wanna wake up and uh, say, you know, rise and shine and give God the glory. You remember that annoying thing that parents do to kids? Um, that they think is imparting God's gospel to them, but is really turning them into atheists. Yeah, so good to be with you today. I miss you when you're not around the rest of the week. Um, wish you were here every day. I don't wish I was preaching every day, but I wish you were around. I wish I could get to know you all. Like when I see you come in, um, this is what it's all about for me. I'm not a pastor to dwell in some ivory tower. Not that I dwell in an ivory tower. It's just a, an office with a couple bozo brains called John Bell and Ryan Kresge. <laughs> but I love being with the people. That's what I love about Jesus. I think he loved being with the people. People weren't what you had to get through in order to do your job. People were your job. And I love that. I love that my calling is people. And uh, it's, this is a special day for me. Um, and I'm the kind of guy that doesn't really care much about birthdays or events. For some reason, they can come and go, and I don't give a rat's hind end. That's a Christian way of saying that phrase. <laughs> but um, I've learned that they are special. And today is a special day for me. This is my 25th this week, my 25th year of ministry. Um, today is when it started. It's sort of self-aggrandizing to have everyone clap for you, but I don't mind. I wanted that. <laughs> but 25 years. I counted it up 25 years times um, 52 years or 52 weeks in a year. This is the 1300 weekend that I've been a part of. I went through my word documents, my sermons, and I have spoken 1571 sermons. Um, not that m many times. I've spoken four times every weekend or three times every weekend or two times every weekend. I don't know how to calculate that when you come to camps and conferences and all those things. But in my Word document, look down through 1,571 sermons. There's a lot in this book. And it's fresh. Like every week to me, it's like, man, I, I knew that was in there. I just did not know how profound and how, you know, there's gold in them there hills, you know? <clears throat> and then it also marks, because right when I got into ministry, a week later, I married my wife. And so our 25th anniversary is this next week, and we're going away. And I'm not going to tell you what we're doing, but we're going to celebrate. <laughs> Kids don't know what that is, but we're going to celebrate and be with each other. And I'm telling you, that woman, she, I married up, and she is the only reason I could make it this far in ministry. And I honor her. I know some churches call the pastor's wife the first lady. I think that's stupid. Um, but I, I really 
the way she is with me and how good she's been to me. I told her last week when she was here, just, I love her so much. I owe so much to her. Like you experience me, but really you don't know you experience us. I'm one flesh with her. This means something to me. And we've been through some ups and downs in ministry and in marriage that, um, man, it just makes milestone moments like this momentous to me. That God has just allowed me to be faithful and stay faithful because of his grace. How many of you are just held together by God's grace? You know what I'm talking about? Like, but for the grace of God, there go I. There's just no way. Without my wife and without the Holy Spirit, my wife oftentimes seems like the Holy Spirit. Just, yeah. That was a good move, brother. Um, it's, a, it's a good move. But uh, I'll never leave or forsake her. And because uh, I made a covenant to her. So the 25 years, it's just I made a covenant to her, and I can't wait for the years to come. But, but I've made a calling, and God's made a calling to ministry. And I'm not going to leave or forsake that either. I'm not going anywhere. If some of you are like, he's been here 17 years, you know, let's just stay until he leaves. He won't be here much longer. <laughs> Don't hold your breath. I've been called to Lowell even more than I've been called to this church. I love this place. I love where God has called me. And I'm not going anywhere. Man, so good. And this word just keeps just being alive and active and like fire that breaks, you know, hammer that breaks rocks into pieces, it says in Jeremiah, or a fire shut up in my bones. It's a, it's a lamp unto my feet and a light into my path. It's like honey on my lips. This, this is what the word says about itself. And it is the sword of the spirit. And if the Spirit's going to speak to you today, he'll speak through his word because this word goes in and separates soul and spirit like joint and marrow and gets to places human beings can't get. I can't get there this morning, but the word can get there because that's the weapon of the Holy Spirit. I, I've learned over the years how important resilience is, but vigilance is just Huge Vigilance is just being wide awake, aware. And there are times I've been in a, a spirit of stupor in certain seasons of my life, and a spirit of stupid, if there's such a thing. But a spirit of stupor comes over you, and you're not, you're not seeing clearly. You ever been in a fog or a cloud, and you're just not vigilant? Like, you're just taken off guard. Like, the enemy can flank you really easy. You're just, you're easy to pick off. And so the Lord's teaching me to be vigilant in my life. In fact, Peter said in 1 Peter 5, verse 8, be sober and vigilant, for the enemy prowls around like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. He wants to steal and kill and destroy, John 10, 10. But he wants to devour your life, your children, your marriage, your heart, your friends, our country our world. He's got one thing on his mind, prowling and devouring. But we got to be sober and vigilant. 
And I want to be that as a pastor, but I want to teach you to be that as ministers of the gospel yourself. We're going to be looking at a text of scripture. We're in a series called Signs and Wonders. And um, this is in 2 Kings chapter 4. We've been in 2 Kings chapter 4 a long time. It's a long chapter, and there's a lot of good stuff in there. But 2 Kings chapter 4, we're going to open this up. And I just want to remind you, this is God's word, his inspired, inerrant word of God. I think a lot of people are just kind of toying around with the scriptures and saying, it's a good book, it's not God's book, it's a lot of good words from good prophets and priests and kings, but it isn't God's word and it's not inerrant and it's not inspired. And I'm telling you, this book in this church is the rule and the authority and the guide and it will stay that way. Even when it's like, well, the world doesn't think that, but God does. We're going to go with God. So as I read this, this is God's word to us. Elisha returned to Gilgal and there was a famine in that region. And while the company of the prophets was meeting with him, that is Elisha, he said to his servant, put on a large pot and cook up some stew for these prophets. Anybody get hungry in here? And one of them went out into the fields and he gathered herbs and found a wild vine and picked as many of its gourds as his garment could hold, right? You ever done that? And when he returned, he cut them up into the pot of stew, though no one knew what they were. (laughs) And the stew was poured out for the men. But as they began to eat, they cried out, man of God is just in the pot. It just went Southern gospel on you there for a second. And they could not eat it. I mean, some of your wife's cooking, right? It's, um, it's one of those moments where it's like, honey, I'm not eating that. Elisha said, get some flour. And he put it in the pot. This was the miracle. And he said, serve it to the people to eat. And there was nothing harmful in the pot. It's four verses. And at first glance, at face value, it seems like a pretty short, uneventful story. Some neat things, but moving right along. You just, if you're reading this, wouldn't you just be like, oh, that's nice. So we're going to just linger here, and, and I'm going to try to squeeze out of this sponge everything God put inside of me. Famine in Gilgal. Famine does crazy things to alter people's behavior, doesn't it? When they wouldn't think of doing something while healthy and relaxed, they can't help themselves from doing when they're hungry. Hunger makes you take shortcuts to both feed and feel pleasure. You begin to compromise standards for satisfaction. You you start to trade real values for release valves in your life. Trust for thirst, Christ for comfort. And the story in Gilgal starts with a bit of loaded emotion and commotion. It says he returned to Gilgal and there was a famine in the region. People were hungry. Or as the devotional said this week, people were hangry. You ever been like that? And hungry people are often desperate people. And what I found about desperate people, at least myself, desperate people 
are rarely discerning people. I, I want to read in our devotional, if you haven't grabbed one of these, you can still get one at the information desk. But Marcus Burton wrote this this week, and I loved how he started on Monday, November 5th. He said, sometimes I wonder how many of our personal crises and predicaments could be avoided if we weren't famished. And I think of famine as a spiritual metaphor. There may have been a physical famine in Elisha's story that led to compromise, but many of us are living in perpetual spiritual famine, which leads to compromises. We're choosing bad gourds and thinking they're good food. Amen? <laughs> in some cases, our poor spiritual diet causes the unwise decisions that spiral into conflicts and crises. Other times the crisis is completely external and our ability to de-escalate the conflict and navigate the crisis depends on our depth of spiritual storehouse. You ever, uh, in a time of hunger, traded gourds for good food? It goes on, this is while the company of the prophets was meeting, Elisha said to his servant, put on the large pot and cook up some stew for these prophets. How would you like to bend that servant? You're in Gilgal, there's a famine, and now you have somebody asking you to pull off this stunt. The passage uses words I feel like I can identify with when I see people in a state of soul famine or a hunger frame of mind. Put on and cook up. Make something happen because the people are hungry. Or, or put it this way, put on a large whatever and cook up some stew for whoever. Put it up and put it on and then cook something up. I feel like we all do this to some degree every week. Have you ever felt forced to make stew in a season of starvation, soul starvation yourself? It's not easy. You ever been asked to produce something with little to nothing? It's not fair. Have you ever been given a large pot and been expected to get something in it by dinner for the customers or the consumers? It's not realistic. But the craven hunger of people bears down on you with unrealistic demands. Those you're responsible to care for, protect, pro provide for, and feed often don't know the pressure you're under internally. They expect you to put it on and to cook something up. Like, I don't care how you're going to do it, but you better figure it out. It's just not the hunger in this passage that's felt. It's the pressure. The deadline is dinner time. And I've noticed that hunger and pressure for me are often the deadly combination that spawns compromise and honestly little deals with the devil at least for me, lapses in my judgment that pit my character against caring for today's pressing needs or people's felt needs. Yet there's hunger and there's pressure, right? People are desperately counting on you to come through for them. 
There's bankruptcy and there's bills. You have to provide at all costs, even if it costs you your integrity. Scarcity and demands is another way of saying it. There seems to be less resources and endless requests. Inadequacy and responsibility. People need more from you, but you've hit your limit. Or maybe you've gone through letdown and you're still a leader. You're trying to help people, but you need serious help yourself. Or depression, and yet there's a duty that calls. You're so sad, but life keeps requiring you to be glad. Don't you love that? Or how about marriage when you're in a state of mourning? You're nursing personal loss while you're trying to show up for your spouse. Anybody been there? Or how about for your kids? I call it misery and modeling. You're bleeding internally while trying to be a good example for your children. Hungry and under pressure. Well, I'm better under pressure. Well, good for you. Most people aren't. Or they're better under pressure for this duration of time. But what happens when that pressure extends and elongates and it's indefinite how long that pressure's gonna last or that hunger's gonna last? And just keeping it real, man, when I'm hungry and I'm under pressure, I start getting sloppy, especially with my judgment my perceptions and my perspectives are whack, as my daughters say. And I can't barely trust myself. Not just my, just not my lens through which I look at life, my filter through which I interpret life. It's off. There's all kinds of hunger, folks. I wrote a list of all the different hungers yeah, there's physical hunger. And a lot of you just have comfort food to take care of that. I wanna to move to something that I think is more relatable here for a lot of people, emotional hunger. You're starving emotionally. Relational hunger. You're just hungry for good, solid, deep friendships. Relational hunger even with your kids that you're estranged from. Sexual hunger. God created that in us. And when that need's not met for a long time, and it could be within a marriage or it could be outside of a marriage, boy, does that come and start nipping at your heels. And it's hard to hold the line of righteousness when you just want your needs met. Existential hunger. I would just say there's a lot of people that they have desires, but they're, they're just hungry for knowledge. Like where did I come from? Why am I here? Where is this going? What is this about? You might be in this room today. You might be here just because you're hungry for truth, but you don't know who's actually dealing in truth anymore. Vocational hunger. You got a job, you're bringing home the bacon, it's paying the bills, but it isn't what is satisfying the longings of your heart. In fact, what you really love and what you're good at aren't even the same thing. Doesn't that really stink? Doesn't that make you angry at God? 
Now, like, did he say we can be angry at God? Read Psalms. <laughs> mental hunger. Some of you are just mental illness and breakdowns and your mind is just writhing and roiling and just, just going crazy and your hunger for sanity is incredible. Or spiritual hunger. There's all kinds of hungers. And all these things start as just needs that God put inside of us, these needs that we have. Needs, I think, turn into hunger when they're unmet. Right? It's not needs. It's unmet needs. It's not desires. It's disappointments. Then you start getting hungry. And hungry people do crazy things. And hungry people live too long with unmet needs and unfulfilled desires, starving for affection and thirsty for connection. They are so vulnerable. They are never more susceptible. I would even say they're gullible. So just like this random guy in the story, we venture off the beaten path and onto the barren fields, into the wild wastelands, collecting anything that looks like food, even if it's a lethal substitute for the real thing, because beggars can't be choosers, right? It goes on in verse 39, says, well, one of them went into the fields to gather herbs. He had every good intention of gathering herbs. But he found a wild vine and picked as many of its cords as his garment could hold. And when he returned, he cut them up into the pot of stew, though no one knew what they were. Just let's, before we get into the first part, that last part is why you need community. Like you're like, I don't know why I just did that, but when people are around you, I don't know what that is, or I'm not sure what I'm feeling, or I have no idea why I'm about to do this. When you have people around you and they all are like, none of us know what that is, dude. That ain't just you. Because if you have community and a couple people are like, I know all about that gourd. That's an exotic gourd grown in the valley of Theor. I don't know, that's not a place, but whatever. It's, I know that gourd. I've eaten that gourd before. Or we haven't eaten that gourd, but my uncle ate that gourd and we had a funeral for my uncle the week later. Like that's not a morel mushroom sort of a thing. It just looks like one. Right? If you've ever been mushroom hunting, there is something that looks like a morel mushroom. You know why I know? Because I sat on, sat on the porcelain pot after I ate that sucker. And I was all proud of myself right up to that moment where I peed out my butt. <laughs> my wife's not here this morning, so I have the Holy Spirit is only here. I'm telling you, little decisions can make a big difference. You got to have accountability. If nobody knows what that is, you need to listen to that. Yeah. You're like, well, why do you do small group? We don't do small groups and life groups for the fun of it. We do life groups because we got a better chance at making good decisions 
when we get around people. We got a better chance of interpreting this book correctly when we're not reading it by our lonesome. You know how many times I've read this book and it's eisegesis or exegesis. Exegesis is reading what God is saying out of the word. Eisegesis is reading my interpretation into the word. And we do that all the time. And I just need somebody to be like, yeah, what you just said, does anybody else think what they just said is, yeah, that's not what it says. I know that's what you wanted to say. That's not what it says. And are we in a world that's literally taking this and messing with it and saying, God said this, and he never said that? Or that's not what he meant. He meant this. God, you know, he's not that enlightened. <laughs> he's old-fashioned. God said it, and I believe it, and that settles it for me, as we used to sing in Sunday school. And you got to have people around you that's like, eh, don't throw that in the pot. You know what we have, though? We have what we have in this story in the church now. We got people bringing wild gourds, poisonous stuff to the pot, and everybody's scared to tell them, even though everybody's feeling something inside in their conscience or their conviction, and they're just like, I don't want to offend him. He worked really hard all day to find that for us. Let's just, I don't know. I don't want to be the one, and it seems like nobody else is saying anything, so maybe it is okay. See, this is the kind of stuff that messes up a whole group of people that think they're about ready to have dinner and they're about ready to have Taco Bell. I hope you don't work at Taco Bell <laughs> or own Taco Bell. <laughs> look at this passage though. <clears throat> he went out into the fields and what did he go out to look for? herbs. You truly go out to gather good herbs, but what you're looking for gets replaced with what you actually find. So many of us settle for what we find instead of reminding ourselves what we're actually looking for. This trade-off is killing a good many of us right now in various areas of our life. What are you looking for and what are you settling for? Well, you, you got to take what you can get, right? No, no, no. What are you looking for? And what are you settling for? What I went out and I was looking for this, but really all I could find was this. That is not good dating practice. Remember who you're looking for, not who's available. Remember what you're looking for in friendships, not the best you could find. I don't know if you've been married once and now you're divorced, boy, you can get really hungry. Anybody know what I'm talking about? 
You get really hungry because you've already experienced all of the delicacies of the goodness of marriage and now you're waiting, but then you're hungry and you can start dropping standards and cutting corners and making deals with the devil just because you don't trust that God has what's best for you. And what you're looking for, you're like, "Mm, I guess I'll take what I find. Don't do it. You can fill your shirt with something that looks good that ain't good. And it'll kill you. When you feel like life's demands are bearing down with you, with time constraints against you, you want to do the right things, but you don't see how it's possible to fulfill the need while keeping it clean. It's easy to settle for a little wild mixed in with what's healthy. You start to drop your standards and gather whatever mimics something edible. You move the goalposts, you change your targets. Discernment is replaced with compromise and you not only put yourself at risk, your desperate decisions are causing you to put a whole lot of people at risk that you're responsible to lead and feed. They're trusting you to distinguish between good and bad, diagnose harmful scenarios and choose what's best, decipher between what seems right and what is right. And this happens in the scripture in individual stories as well as collective stories. I can't, the perfect, uh, you know, parallel to this story would be Esau and Jacob. Jacob's back, mama's boy cooking up some lentil stew. Esau's out, you know, hunting and gathering. And he comes back famished, hungry. And he literally comes to Jacob and he has a bowl of stew there. And he's like, if you give me that bowl of lentil stew, I'll give you the most priceless prized possession a person had in that day. My birthright and my blessing from my father. You got it? If I can have that one bowl of stew. What a psychopathic trade-off. But in the moment, all you're thinking of is I'm hungry. You don't have a long view of things. Get some altitude and you're like, ah, that'd be so stupid. I'd rather live hungry a little longer and keep my birthright and my blessing. Collectively, the nation of Israel did it. They come to Mount Sinai where he's up there getting the 10 commandments and all of Leviticus and Deuteronomy, all the laws of God and it's flashing with lightning and there's a cloud, something cool's happening up there, but they're not up there. And it says in the text, he was up there a little while and guess what the people were clamoring for? They wanted something to worship now. And so they gave all their jewelry, all their gold. They made a golden calf and they bowed down to it because the guy was up there for a little while. And I don't know, we're not into delayed gratification. The text goes on, the stew was poured out for the men. Oh, was it ever. And as they began to eat, they cried out, man of God, there's death in the pot. I remember in college, I went to Baptist Bible College. Now I think it's called Summit University because you're cool if you have university at the end of your name. But I remember 
I want to say it was almost three quarters of the school body came down with just horrible food poisoning. And it wasn't hard to trace it back. It was the cafeteria, (laughs) which basically is food poisoning waiting to happen almost every day. So it was interesting around that time, um, me and my buddies went back to the dumpsters and we found boxes. And on the boxes, I kid you not, was this phrase. Grade D, but edible. I mean, you can eat it. You can eat a lot of stuff. (laughs) Grade D, but edible. I'll never forget that. You're going to be in a world of hurt. You keep eating grade D, but edible. Keeps your college bill low, but it also wrecks shop on your bowels. I didn't tell this story last night, but now that we're talking about wreck shop and bowels, um, <laughs> I actually, when I first met Ryan, who's our executive pastor, everybody know Ryan here? Some of you are new. Um, I think he's speaking in a couple weeks, but I didn't know him for very long. And I would, he, where Bailey and Virgen's meet as you're going toward Ada right there. Anybody know what I'm talking about? He used to live on Virgen's right up here in a little blue house. And I was out running down on the trail on Bailey, you know, and I was running. And then it just occurred to me, I, did, I had a bit of bad beef, as C.S. Lewis would say. And something in me started, you know when you feel it and you're two and a half miles from the house and whatever's happening, you're not going to wipe this with a leaf um, <laughs> in the woods. <laughs> I panicked. And the more you think about it, the more it's coming like um, Mount Vesuvius, you know, explosion, volcanic eruption. And it occurred to me while I was running that as we were coming to this, like, I could go all the way here and then up to Ryan's house, or I could walk through this neighbor up through the woods, like William Wallace running on the top of these woods. I could bust out through his backyard and bust in and use his bathroom if I can even make it that far. If I can't, I'll at least be in the woods. So I busted through the woods and I came up his backyard and his wife and his kids are out there. They're doing gardening. And I, the pastor, come out of their woods. Be careful. I've been known to do this. Um, Come out of their woods. And I was not really interested in any conversation at that point. He's like, what are you doing? I'm like, where's your bathroom? And he's like, are you okay? I'm like, I'm not okay. Where's your bathroom? It's right in the back door to the left. I'll never forget where it was. I busted in there and it was a dumb and dumber moment that it was crazy, explosive diarrhea. And I came back out and I remember Heather didn't barely know me at all. And the kid's like, what just happened? Well, this is our pastor, kids. Um... And they're like, are you all right? And I'm like, I am now. I am now. Let's have a conversation. That had nothing to do really with anything. I just felt like telling that story. It's a great way to meet people and to gain credibility um, because you never know who you're going to hire someday. So you need to have that moment 
right there of uh, vulnerability. I've been struck with this death in the pot thing, Second Kings. And it, it occurred to me and I looked into this. There's a lot more ingredients in a pot of stew than just one thing, right? What death in the pot actually looks like is you got some tasty broth and you got some smidgen of garlic or peppers, some succulent meat, some tender potatoes, some pure olive oil, two tablespoons of salt, cup of red wine, glazed carrots, fresh peas, and poisonous gourds. Everything else is great. It's the nine out of 10 principle really for most of us. Most of what's in the pot is perfectly healthy, but for one deadly ingredient. Everything seems great, but for a pinch of poison. And this is Satan's core strategy, folks. He knows if the whole thing's just filled with poison, we, we got an eye for that. We're looking for that. And Jesus spoke of this little pinch of sin when he was talking to the Pharisees and Sadducees and about them with the metaphor of yeast and dough. Be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees and Sadducees. The small ways that they change the law and it feels like the law, but they're going further than the law suggests. Paul piggyback on Jesus' wisdom when he said, a little yeast works through the whole batch of dough, or the way I remember it growing up with the King James Version, a little leaven leaveneth the whole lump. And maybe it's just because I like the L's in there. A little leaven leaveneth the whole lump, baby. Just a little bit, it affects the whole. There is death in the pot. And it got me to thinking where we're letting death into the pot in our lives. And I remember asking God for what Paul said, I pray that you'll have a spirit of wisdom and revelation that you might know him better and the eyes of your heart might be enlightened. Because God, show me what's in people's lives. What's the death in the pot? It's killing us softly. And it's typically the nine out of 10 principle in our homes, in our hearts, in our kids, in our marriages. What about just death in the pot of your own heart? Well, you're a born again believer, God-given personality of a heart for people, desire to please God, involved in church, you tithe faithfully, you're involved in the community, you have a passion for the lost, you're hungry for God's word, and you are a people pleaser. Do you know that one thing can contaminate and pollute all the other things? Or maybe you're not a people pleaser, but there's other deadly ingredients in an otherwise good heart stew. Lingering bitterness and anger, it's been on their surface a long time. Constant comparison, chronic discontentment. You're lonely if you're not busy distracting yourself. You're disappointed with people. There's so many letdowns in life. You have an inner dislike for yourself. You're very hard on yourself. You have secret sins you're not telling anybody about. You lack self-awareness. And then when anyone points it out, you're threatened when confronted. You have shallow relationships leaving behind a shriveled soul. There's so much pretending and presenting, but you're not fully present. Presentation, but no presence. What about death 
in your marriage, death in the pot of your marriage. God is a key part of your life. You go to church, right? You spend quality time together. You enjoy laughter with each other. You have similar interests and values. You both know your unique roles. You have healthy intimacy. You meet each other's basic needs. You date each other regularly. You celebrate each other's wins, but you avoid conflict at all costs and you harbor secrets. Some other deadly ingredients could be both are from broken families of origin who modeled bad conflict resolution and now you've got it. You have this nagging struggle with self-image and self-confidence. I'll tell you, <clears throat> that one is so huge because if a woman doesn't think she's beautiful, even if she's beautiful, it doesn't matter if you call her beautiful. I could just take any word and replace it. History of sexual or emotional abuse, and it's just coming up. You know, when you were a kid, you were molested. Different financial approaches to saving and spending and debt, and you just can't get your crap together. An unhealthy relationship with in-laws or parents, which really comes into effect coming into Thanksgiving and Christmas. Hidden pornography on your phone, maybe that's called pocket porn. An emotional affair, hidden adultery. <clears throat> One person is drawn to God, the others become apathetic even in this room today. A spouse is emotionally starving for deep communication, the other doesn't really care about it. Or there's a stagnant and cold romantic dynamic with one person totally okay with that. See how long that hunger lasts. Other people value them, but the spouse takes him or her for granted. I remember my wife said to me one time when I was leaving her somewhat emotionally vulnerable because I wasn't communicating something to her, she went to the Y and someone smiled at her and said she looked really good and she came home to me and said, that should not have felt as good as it did. We're talking about hunger. I can guarantee you, if you won't tell your spouse something good about them, somebody will. Comparison to other couples, impossible expectations and assumptions. What about death in your family? This is the parents' edition. You have a beautiful house, money in the bank, take vacations together, you've gone to Disney, right? Eat meals together, keep your kids active, you have dreams for your children, you provide security and safety, you do special things for them, you go to all their events and activities, and you're all addicted to screens. Things are mostly good. Here's some other ingredients that kill a good home stew. Things are mostly good until somebody gets triggered. <laughs> you have to walk on eggshells too in order to keep everyone happy in the home. Guilt, shame, and manipulation are used to coerce compliance. That'll work until they're about 12. And then they hate you. You're giving them stuff, but not your own heart and time and words. They don't want your stuff. They want your heart. You want to be liked so much you don't follow through with your discipline. Your home becomes too serious and heavy, devoid of joy and laughter. Other responsibilities are preoccupying you so that you're not present at home. You're turning to alcohol as an escape and it's finally catching up to you. You're letting social media raise your children because of exhaustion. 
You're let, you're, you let your kids do things they shouldn't do just because their friends are and you want them to be popular, right? You lose creativity and time is filled with boredom in your house instead of fresh ideas. Happens to all of us. Uh, what about death in your home? And this is the kids' uh, addition. I said addition. And my daughter, Tay, who wants to be a computer scientist, pointed that out last night. Sorry for that. I love having a persnickety daughter. You know your parents love you. You feel taken care of. You have a safe place to live. I'm talking junior hires and teens and younger kids. You never go hungry without your parents' sacrifice for you. You get along with your siblings okay. You're sort of spoiled, honestly. You have freedom to do your thing. You're given great opportunities. And your parents, though, they live double lives. They're one thing in public and another thing in private. And you're noticing the hypocrisy. There's other deathly ingredients for students. You're spending a bunch of time in your room shutting your family out. You're addicted to TikTok. She also said, that's not how you spell that, Dad. <laughs> Instagram or Snapchat, Snapchat or video games, but you won't admit it. You're hiding things from your parents that you know you're doing with your friends. You're becoming selfish and spoiled, but you act like it's your parents' fault. You constantly fight, exercising no self-control and taking no responsibility. You might be depressed right now or anxious, even suicidal, and you don't know why and you haven't told anybody. You witnessed your parents' marriage as mechanical, like this butler married to this maid. No one knows the hidden addictions in your house and you're keeping it secret. Let's keep it in the family, right? Kind of thing. And you know your actions are breaking God's heart right now and it's eating you alive inside. I believe even though you might be like, well, I'm not an adult, that you have a heart and you have a conscience and the Holy Spirit, there's no like middle school Holy Spirit, junior high Holy Spirit or high school Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, when he comes, comes in the same form your parent has. And you know these things and God is pointing them out. That's a wild gourd. That's not good food. Death in friendships. This is killing people. You have good, solid friends. You laugh hard together. You have deep conversations. Your kids connect with each other. You have accountability and support. They strengthen your faith and family. You pray for each other and call each other. You pick each other up when you're down. You celebrate your wins with jealousy, without jealousy. And you talk about other people when you're together constantly. It's called gossip. It's got to stop. Can we mature and grow up? Other deadly ingredients in otherwise good friendships too. You have too many friends. <laughs> Has your spouse ever told you that? It's in the Bible, it is a man of many friends will come to ruin. That's the Proverbs. Just so that you know that's biblical. You get jealous of other friend groups. You don't tell each other the truth in order to not offend each other. You obsess over social media and what you're not included in on. You constantly feel like you're missing out on something. You give to everyone else, but people aren't returning the favor. You talk more about feelings together than you do God's truth. Times together become activity-driven instead of purpose-driven. Friends actually replace God as a source of identity, and that's called idolatry. And your friends now have replaced or displaced your spouse's rightful place. 
death in your occupation, you make decent money, you feel like your contribution matters, there's fulfillment what you do. Even in stress, you leave feeling meaning, you're taking care of your coworkers and employees, you have good insurance and a pension, you have ample paid vacation, others affirm you in your performance, you're good at what you do, successful even, but you're cutting even a couple ethical corners here and there. Other deathly ingredients, you're constantly complaining about your job to people and family. You're lying and taking advantage of your company's trust. Your boss doesn't know how you're abusing some of your privileges. You're not giving your best effort. How little can I give and get away with it? Or the opposite, enough's never enough. You're a workaholic and it's creating a toxic culture. You're demanding and controlling. Micromanaging has become almost neurotic for you. You don't know how to let things go. You hold grudges and it only hurts you. You're obsessed with money. The more you make, the more you want. And the deadly one is your worth is now your work. If there's no hyperactivity in your life, there is no identity. And this loss of discernment and discretion has a predictable progression. Paul said in Ephesians 4, 17, I tell you this and insist on it in the Lord. Like I mean it. You cannot live the way the world does. Starts with futile thinking and they're darkened in their understanding. Then they separate from the life of God because of the ignorance that's in them due to the hardening of their hearts. And then they start to lose all sensitivity and then they give themselves to sensuality and then indulge in every kind of impurity with a continual lust for more. It starts with futile thinking and then you can't stop yourself from addictive behavior. And it's the age-old progression of subtle sin. It's futile thinking, just random thoughts, darkened understanding. Man, cloudy conclusions I'm coming to. Separation from God, you cut him off. He only makes you feel bad about yourself. You start ignoring the truth, reinventing reality, hardening your heart, enter the rebel, loss of sensitivity, creating calluses, surrender to sensuality, desperate for pleasure when you're hungry, right? Indulgence into impurity, unhealthy habits, and insatiable lust, unmanageable addiction. It's just a gourd. And then it goes on. And Elisha says in verse 41, get some flour. And he put it in the pot, said, serve it to the people. And there was nothing harmful in the pot. It's a miracle. That's the sign and the wonder. The flour cleansed the stew. And the flour in this is like the blood of Jesus that wipes away all our sins. But in order for the blood of Jesus to take effect, it follows a biblical pattern and the path we must follow today if we expect God's blessing and favor in our life to make it healthy. The flower of cleansing starts with conviction. I feel ashamed. It goes to confession. I admit I'm wrong. No more seared conscience, no more quenching the spirit, right? Repentance, I turn from my sin. I'm cleaning out my closet, I'm coming clean. I'm turning around. And then a life surrendered to God. I give my life to you every day, every second of the day, especially when I take it back by nine in the morning. God, I'm coming home. And then obedience. I'm going to live out your commands even when I don't feel like it. And there was nothing harmful in the pot. This is the power of coming to our senses and resuming good leadership in our life, discerning leadership. We are saved and it saves others. We're, pu we're pulled out of harm's way and we keep others out of harm's way. Good leaders don't tolerate harmful practices. Leadership of your life, your marriage, your children, your workplace, in church, in this community, 
They all are relying on us. Because it's not just what you create, it's what you tolerate. Both of those things are what make a good leader. And this principle of being careful about what you're putting in your pot and stirring into the stew of your existence is replete in the scripture. A verse hit me this week that I learned and memorized in Christian school growing up. It says this in Galatians 6. Do not be deceived. God will not be mocked. Whatever a man sows, that will he also reap. But listen to this. Peace and mercy to all who follow this rule. That's just a little bit. Whatever you sow, you're going to reap. Mercy and favor and peace comes to the ones who are like, that's true. So take an inventory of your life. What do you need to implement today in order for there to be nothing harmful in your pot anymore? What do you need to go home today and get rid of? What do you need to confess to your loved ones today and change? Where do you need to invite God to cleanse and transform your heart and mind? What attitudes and actions can no longer be tolerated and rationalized? Where are you compromising and consequently living a compromised life? Where do you need God's flower to come in and help you remove the death in the pot that's killing you and the people you love? I'm just telling you, don't put it off. Rid yourself of it today and surrender your life afresh to God. Living a holy life, I'm just telling you, will bring wholeness to your life. Just will. The next generation depends on us growing up in our maturity, not thinking we can manage our sin. You can't manage your sin. God is patient, but Satan shares that quality. He is so patient. And he doesn't want you to do this tomorrow or next year by 2025. He's just fine waiting around for you to little by little sow things into your life that you start reaping in the year 2027, 2039. And as we become discerning and say, you know what, I'm looking for herbs and I don't care what I can find that's plentiful. I'm gonna keep looking for herbs. What Egg in the face, do you feel like you're going to have? What would have happened if this one servant would have gone back to Elisha and said, you know what, we got a lot of good stuff in the pot. I couldn't find any of those herbs. The stew's not going to be quite as, you know, full as it would have been. But I found these gourds, but I, I got there and nobody knew what they were. And I just don't think it's worth the risk. And what we're scared of is because we're discerning and we don't just do something out of pressure and hunger, we're scared that the people that are depending on us, if we come back with integrity and say, I'd rather have no stew than those herbs mixed with those gourds. And I'm telling you, your wife and your family and your boss and anybody expecting something from you, if you will not cash out on your character and sell out in your integrity, you will be a priceless offering to this world. Teach your kids. They can come to you even if they feel like they're a letdown because you asked them to do something. They didn't fulfill your expectations. If they tell you, I didn't because of this, I went out looking for it, but I couldn't find it. Well done good and faithful servant. But we're scared by the response of everybody counting on us. And so we cut corners 
and it's killing us. So God, I know I was convicted to myself while I was talking. There's just some things in my life that came to my mind that I wasn't thinking about. And I got to think about and I got to talk to my wife about. And I hope that's what you've done for others here, that you'll remind us of this word going into the week. Help us to keep our hearts set on what we're looking for and to not rationalize and to take what we'll settle for. As a church, help us in this world where theology and ideology are meshing together and gourds are getting mixed with herbs. Help us to be a church that is faithful, that we pursue sound doctrine, that we don't let the yeast of the Pharisees come into this place thinking, ah, we're just trying to be relevant and cool, and all of a sudden, the church of God languishes and suffers and the reputation of your kingdom goes obsolete. Help us, Lord, we need you. Open our eyes. Give us discernment. We stand in need of discernment, Lord. And we pray this in your son's name. Amen. Amen. Hey, you're dismissed. I love you very much.